Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson, and today is June 30. The second quarter's done. Half the year is done. We've got a special show for you. Just ahead, we're going to look at the businesses behind the three hottest stocks of the second quarter. And while we're at it, forget today's market. We'll have some context looking at the results from the quarter and the first half of the year. And then Center Square Investment Management, CIS, Scott Crow joins us to talk about EPR and its bet on experiential properties. Interesting story. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. So many of our listeners are listening to this show every single day. We hope you are too. And that's easier if you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and follow us to catch every day's episode. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me as always on this special day at the end of the first half of the year, the end of the quarter, the end of the month, the end of this day for some people, not for me, but executive producer Isaac Webster joining us right now. Isaac, what are the three most important developments uh, when we look at the world of business today or re- indeed when we look at the end of this quarter and the end of the first half of the year? So, Corey, even though we don't really track the daily tick, we don't track the daily tick of the stock market because that's not the way to measure the health of business or the economy. But as you've mentioned, it's the end of the quarter, end of the first half of the year. So let's take stock of stocks, if you will. Humor me for a minute. I will. Now, Wall Street just closed out its fifth straight quarterly gain, the S&B advancing 8.2% over the past three months. And for the year to date... Stocks closed out the first half of the year with double-digit percentage gains, powered by that economic recovery we've been talking about that many investors believe is still gathering pace. So, And that's despite these inflation and valuation risks we've also been hearing about. The S&P 500 is up 14, over 14% this year I'll through today. I'll call it 15. We'll call it 15, almost 15. The Dow has climbed almost 13%. And this quarter marked both indexes' fifth consecutive quarter of gains, as I mentioned, and their longest such streak since a nine-quarter stretch that lasted through 2017. I should mention the Nasdaq is higher by 12.5% year-to-date. The stocks are now in their second year of... mm, That's not quite 13, almost 13. But stocks are now in their second year of a bull market after bouncing back from the pandemic-fueled sell-off of 2020, which I assume you remember. And, and, you know, uh, who knew at the time, right? It lasted about a month or so, and the market started roaring right back. Um, kind of amazing. So 15% from the S&P, the Dow and the NASDAQ, 13% for the year. That's pretty good. Yeah, healthy, healthy, healthy advances there. Now, Corey, we're also watching this story. Robinhood will pay $70 million to settle a regulatory probe. The agreement resolves allegations the brokerage misled customers, approved ineligible traders for risky strategies, and didn't supervise technology that failed and locked millions out of trading. Robinhood's, Robinhood's biggest source of revenue is stems from con- consumer, I'm sorry, customer trading, more than tripled in the first quarter, even as many of those customers complained about his technology snafus and limited customer service. Big deal for them if they are indeed looking at going public sooner, whether it's through a SPAC or traditional IPO. There have been reports about that. Putting this behind them with a settlement 
helps them get a, a, a clearer path towards a, a higher valuation in a public offering. I don't know if I'm just jaded, but that $70 million number doesn't seem like a big, significant number to me. I could be totally wrong, and maybe we do this too much, but I mean, I $70 know. million. I mean, that, you know, it is what I, it is. I, I don't know, you know how, how bad their behavior was, but in any case, right, $70 million worth of bad, I guess. Now, Corey, you like pigs, right? Sure. Let's talk about pigs. Prices for ho- big fan yeah, of porky. pork, pork, oink, all of that. No, porky the pig. I mean, uh, porky the pig. Sure, yeah, that too. Charlotte's I hope. Web, I, I, I hope Charlotte's that pig. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Porky's doing great. I hope. Hope. Well, we all know what happened to Porky, but prices for hogs in the U.S. are tumbling. That's as China rebuilds its herd since they recovered from the African swine fever. Now, through last week, the most active hog futures contract trading on the CME, that's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, has fallen nearly 17%, bringing the price down to 99 cents a pound, the first time it has fallen under a dollar since March. Now, you may remember the outbreak of African swine fever in 2018 forced China's hog producers to cut roughly 40% of its hog population. Yeah, this happened a lot faster than was expected. Caught the markets off surpri- uh, by surprise, I think, this recovery and the increase in, in, in hog production. Of course, hog production comes back a lot faster than cattle production. Not that there's much cattle production in China, but uh, hog production you know, takes about a year, 18 months to grow a pig. It takes about three years to grow a cow, so it's a, it's a big change here. And I, I mentioned that because a lot of it's coming off of um, uh, what happened during the pandemic um, and the, the vast increase in in consumption during that time frame. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the three best performing stocks of the second quarter, because, you know, I'm a very positive person, Isaac. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll, we'll, look at the, we'll look at the winners. You know, why not look at the upside? We're going to look at the best performing small cap, the best performing mid cap, and the best performing large cap. Defined as? Great question. All right, small cap larger than 300 million, mid cap larger than 2 billion, and large cap better than 10 billion. We used a, a terrific free tool on the website, finviz.com. I think I've showed you that before. It's great. It's a, I can't believe this stuff is free on the internet right now. They've got a paid version as well, but finviz hey, don't helped jinx us it. Don't screen. jinx it. Don't jinx it. All right. Well, they helped us screen uh, for the best performance. So we're going to give you the, the, the greater than 300 million market cap and then mid better than 2 billion and large cap better than 10 billion. Okay. So what do you have? All right, small cap, Vertex Energy. Vertex Energy up, oh, wow, 690% in the quarter, 29% rise today alone. Talk to me about Vertex Energy. Well, at first glance, this looks like a complicated story, but it's really not. Uh, If you look what this company has gone through, though, it looks like something out of Homer's Odyssey or the Book of Job or something. Vertex Energy runs refineries, but not your typical oil refinery like Chevron or Marathon. In addition to typical oil refining, these guys also refine used motor, motor oil and, re, and into re-refined motor oil, right? So they take used motor oil, they essentially run it through the whole refining process, sometimes all five steps of refining, and then they come out with a cleaner motor oil that can be reused. They also make renewable diesel fuel, otherwise known as RD. How, how do you go about renewing diesel fuel? Same as regular refining. You take the oil through all five steps of refining, but your base stock isn't petroleum, it's vegetable oil or animal fats. And there are certain government subsidies, especially in the state of California, for selling this um, uh, RD or, or redefined 
uh, uh, diesel. So uh, in late May, this company did an amazing deal. They bought a Mobile, Alabama refinery from Royal Dutch Shell that was functioning, you know, uh, effectively as an oil refinery. But these guys figured out they could use it for this renewable diesel as well. And so it took this company, Vertex, and kind of completely changed their potential output. It increased their potential output by 19,000%. Put another way, by adding this new refinery on, this new refinery would be 95% of the refining capacity. Now, this isn't just about renewables, but it's about the combination of traditional refining and renewables. And uh, CEO, Vertex CEO, Ben Cowart, he says that this Mobile plant uh, will be profitable over the long term, subsidies or no subsidies. You know, this is a long-term decision. This is a long-term asset, and, and we uh, are planning that, that we're going to run it that way. Uh, we've got other uh, other upside for this facility beyond renewables that you know tie to our core business. Uh, this is an amazing facility uh, for the production of base oils, and, and that's um, long-term part part of our uh, strategy as we evaluate uh, how we can leverage this asset to continue our our presence uh, in the high purity base oil business. So phone for Ben. So this is a this is a platform. This is a building block for the company so we can, uh, you know, continue the work that we've done in our current um, core uh, space and markets as, as we bring this renewable focus uh, into, into our, our long-term strategy. So interesting company. Uh, and then today you mentioned a big move in the stock today alone. Uh, today the company announced that now that it's got this mobile refinery, they can change their business. Now, as I mentioned, they had a ton of debt. They had, you know, hurricanes and fires and all this stuff that they were suffering from. Well, they announced that they had sold a pile of their old refineries to a company called Clean Harbors for $140 million in cash. Well, that $140 million in cash could theoretically wipe out all their debt if they wanted to pay it down. But by comparison, the entire company, Vertex, had a market cap of less than $140 million just a month ago. Now wow. that's north of $500 million. Yeah. So big, you know, really... This company managed to survive and made some really big bets and some big pivots. And at this point, it looks like they're all working out. I really like that story. That's a, um, it's good to know about. Hey, Corey, what's your next drill down? All right. The best performing mid cap of the last quarter was a company called Cerevel Therapeutic Holdings. Cerevel was up 140 percent in the quarter, though it did, the shares did fall 14% today. What's the Cerevel story? After being up a lot yesterday, that's kind of why, but let's get it. The name would suggest it's a biotech, right? So in particular, they are focused on uh, neurological drugs and uh, coming up with some new treatments to neurological drugs, neurological problems such as Parkinson's, schizophrenia, uh, even, um, um, you know, anxiety, uh, really interesting developments and a lot of drugs in the pipeline. Now, as I mentioned, the shares were up a lot yesterday. They doubled yesterday after the company announced positive results for its novel phase 1B candidate for schizophrenia, which they call CVL-231. Now, those phase 2 studies are next, and they're going to explore the drug not just for schizophrenia, for, but for dementia-related psychosis. And they talk a lot about uh, their different sort of studies looking for dementia as they develop lots of drugs. Uh, earlier the month, in the month, in the, sorry, early in June, I should say, the company received fast-track designation from the FDA for another candidate, CVL-871, 
for dementia-related apathy. Fascinating conversation. I won't get into it too much here, but in the last conference call, about how apathy is kind of one of the first precursors to, or the first uh, signs of a, a, a mental decline in elderly people, and that if apathy can both be noticed, studied, and treated, it might actually prevent a lot of the horrible things that happen to people um, in their old age. Um, interesting stuff and ha- affecting lots and lots of people across lots of other diseases that ultimately result. Now, Cerville's most advanced asset is something called tavaptopon. So tavaptopon is, is for early and late stage Parkinson's disease. Uh, it's also in, uh, also in their pipeline. They've got a drug for epilepsy and anxiety, another one for substance use disorder. Now, Cerville's an interesting company because it was founded in 2018 by Pfizer and Bain Capital with Pfizer spinning off some of their neurological candidates into a separate company, this company, and they went public in October of last year through a SPAC. So it's one of the few SPACs, at least as far as I can see, that's really outperformed its initial expectations, right? We've seen so many SPACs, Lordstown, others that have come out and saying, we're going to do XYZ, buy our stock. Some of the insiders sell their stock and then they miss uh, those projections and come up with new projections. Not these guys, they're crushing it. And the management says actually that the SPAC uh, uh, vehicle itself and one particular transaction where they sold off a piece of Tavaptopon was really appropriate for this company because it gave them the cash they needed, de-risked the portfolio a little bit. Well, here's CEO Tony Coles. One of the things that was really important in this particular transaction was to leverage what I call the power of the pipeline and in both capitalizing the company, but funding the assets uh, as well. Uh, we've got a, a, a wide berth of, and a wide number, a broad number of assets and programs, some of which, like Tavapadon, lend themselves to non-equity dilutive financing. And when you think about the strategic direction for the company, the build out of the portfolio, and the fact that we had an opportunity to do some non-equity dilutive financing, it all came together and made sense because it provides us the maximum amount of flexibility, not just to add dollars to the balance sheet, but in how we designed the transaction itself, which does give us um, a, a lot of flexibility. So I th- uh, interesting company, interesting drugs. Uh, I'd never heard of Cerval before I started looking into it today, um, or Vertex for that matter, but uh, two companies in the small cap and in the mid cap space, uh, space, I hate that word, but these companies apparently are doing quite well in the market rewarded them for that in the last quarter as the best performing stocks in the small and mid-cap area. Look, Corey, I've really enjoyed these last two stocks, so don't disappoint me with the next one. What is your next drill down? Pressure's on. Well, the pressure's on. The bar is high. The best performing large cap of the second quarter of 2021. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. We don't really have drum rolls. Got this. Well, we need to get one. But <laughs> we'll save so that the for opposite the of that sound. <laughs> Here it is. AMC. AMC. AMC so is AMC a large cap. The, it's a. That's just that's that's where we are right now. A large cap. Ah, I, I didn't know that. Well, I guess yeah. I guess a lot's changed for AMC. It's it was flat today, but AMC shares are higher, have gained 445% in the quarter, in the quarter, 116% gain in June. And what the heck? Oh, what? Is this number correct? This is correct. AMC shares have gained 
2,261% this year. Yeah, amazing. And uh, my youngest son who came downstairs one day and said, buy me a share of AMC. I'm like, oh, I'll show him a lesson. And he sold it at a loss. He's going to kill me if he listens to the podcast today. We know what happened here, right? The Wall Street Bets crew in the midst of COVID yeah. decided that AMC was a, a victim of short sellers. It could be a great company once again someday. They were um, uh, dismissive of the company's debt and uh, dismissive of the threats posed, the existential threats of streaming and, and so on. They put big bets, Wall Street Bets did, on this company, AMC, and they uh, they were rewarded by it. They they saw the the macro environment change with vaccines leading to reopenings across the U.S. AMC theaters and and in Europe, AMC theaters started to open. Um, there was a modest, what I'll call modest, box office success, led to even more gains in the stock. Even though box office is well below where it were in 2019, that seemed to give more sort of uh, energy behind the shares of AMC. And most importantly, I think the company took advantage of the Reddit hype. They sold a lot of stock in the first quarter to recapitalize the company and give them a longer runway. Here's the CEO, Adam Aaron, talking about, is during the May 6th conference call, he was asked by one of the analysts, what are you going to do about the new shareholder base? And again, professional Wall Street, a little bit dismissive of the retail shareholders as, um, as they're represented in Reddit, uh, by the Reddit uh, and tweeters and so on. And he talks about his, his approach to these new set of shareholders, CEO Adam Aaron. If management thinks something and the owners of our business think something else, in the free market system, guess who wins? Guess who always wins? The owners of the business. Because the managements work for the owners. Now, um, we can try to explain and we can try to persuade and we can also listen uh, and we can adjust our strategy. There are a lot of ways to skin a cat. Um, uh, and I'm quite optimistic about the new shareholder base of AMC. Um, just go on Twitter. Just go on Reddit. Just go on YouTube, read what these people write. They love AMC. This is, and these are not pe people who are just gonna be investors in AMC. These are gonna be customers of AMC who come to our theaters and enjoy watching movies at our theaters as paying guests. So um, I love the idea that we have a com passionate, committed, enthusiastic shelter base. And I'm sure that as we work together, management and ownership, uh, we'll come to the right answer. Uh, look at what we've achieved, as I, you know, the whole point of my prepared remarks. Look at we, what we've achieved in the last year. We're going to achieve good things the next year and the year after that, too. Uh, so, um, you know, interesting strategy of embracing those people. It's also very much worth noting that although Mr. Aaron did not sell any shares, you had tons of insider selling by the directors, by executives at AMC, $15 million worth of stock they sold uh, in the in the second quarter alone at some kind of high prices, right? Uh, higher prices than my son sold his share, his singular share of stock. 
Um, so it's it's been an interesting, really interesting quarter for AMC. And again, the company really taking advantage of changing its cap structure a little bit, get extending the runway by selling shares during this run-up from the speculators on Wall Street bets. So let's uh, keep that trend going. Let's talk about what could be next, right? So if the experience economy is the future, is there a real estate play in the experience economy? Well, our next guest, Center Investment Management Chief Investment Strategist, Scott Crow has a really interesting, really big company entirely focused on experience economy real estate. But first. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod and check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. Joining us right now, Center Square Investment Management Chief Investment Strategist, Scott Crow. Scott, uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What uh, is Center Square Investments? So Center Square uh, Investment Management is about a $14 billion AUM investment manager focused on real estate and its various forms, primarily for institutional investors. Uh, we've been in business since 1987, so I guess this will make it our fourth real estate cycle. And <clears throat> the way we access real estate is is through a number of, of uh, you know different platforms we have here internally. We're one of the, the world's largest investors in publicly traded REITs. Um, we also manage uh, private equity real estate investments for clients, both core and value add. And uh, lastly, uh, debt. Uh, we we lend uh, to assets, as, uh, uh, real estate assets as well. And yet you have brought a publicly traded equity for us, or really kind of a REIT, I guess, um, yeah. uh, which is, of course, still a publicly traded equity. Um, but uh, talk to me about this EPR Properties, uh, a big company that I've never looked at until you brought it to our attention. Well, EPR Properties is really interesting. Um, you know, it was interesting before the pandemic, and it's you know interesting as we go into yeah, it. Yeah, it's weird. Meeting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, it's it's uh, it basically. So here's what it here, here's what it's doing. It's it's catching the big trend that's been happening in consumption really now for over a decade. Um, <clears throat> more and more of our wallet share is shifting as and has shifted to services away from goods. Okay, so in other words, we spend a lot more on a cup of coffee, right? That's a service from Starbucks than a pair of shoes than we did say 10, 20 years ago. Secondly, um, it's part of the retail landscape where you have a growing tenant base because it's internet resilient. You know, you can't get your hair cut online, right? So, um, uh, and you can't get to see- And if we didn't know that before COVID, we know it now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not so good when you do it yourself at home. There's also, we've also learned. But, um, uh, it, and so it, it's, it's catching both those trends from a big picture standpoint. So what EPR Properties does is focus on areas such as movies, um, theme parks, what they, this new category called entertainment, such as Top Golf, where you go out and do something and you know, have, have some food and, and drinks with your friends, uh, ski resorts, etc. And these all have huge structural demand drivers behind them. Be, you know, 
if we didn't miss all those things before the pandemic, you know, we, we certainly have missed, you know, we realize how much we miss those communal activities. Um, and it's still trading at a pretty depressed valuation relative to a lot of the REIT sector, just given really, I guess, the uncertainty around, um, you know, the reopening and, and I think just you know, sort of, it's a stock that's sort of been left behind. So, but I think it has great long-term prospects. Well, so I think it's super interesting because it, you know, I, I, as I always say on the show, I'm not terribly interested in the stock or stock price, but I really am interested in what we learn about business, what's going on in the world through the study of business, right? That's why I'm a business journalist. And I, I think um, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm all with you in this notion of the experiential economy. We saw people, even during COVID, kind of changing the way that they live to go for some certain kinds of experiences, whatever they could have. But it does raise the question, this company raises the question uh, more than most, which is what behavioral changes uh, through COVID will be different? And and I want to take that a little, and that's maybe obvious, but let's take it a little step further, which is which is not only what uh, what will be different is how can you see it? What numbers do you look for? Maybe we will go back to skiing, for example, but not go back to the movies. Yeah, so um, the movies is definitely the biggest pain point in this stock. And so getting getting that piece right uh, is you know, very important to the thesis. But you know, I think stepping back, I mean, what do we know? We've got you know, tens of millions of new you know, Amazon Prime members. We've all been forced to buy more stuff online, right? Uh, and, and even groceries. And we, we, we figured out that, hey, you know what? It's really, really convenient. And so I think that shift, that shift to online consumption of goods, of physical goods, is something that's going to, um, you know, is going to stick around and accelerate. Um, and that's, you know, that's why you're seeing a lot of pain at, you know, the department store levels, for instance, because they're, they're getting disintermediated. Uh, you know, on the, on the other hand, I mean, the, the, if you look at, okay, so if we want to look at some data, <clears throat> um, we can look at, uh, we can look at open table reservations, right? Since states started to open, those have rapidly normalized and we can go inside in many states, even here in the Northeast now without our masks on. Um, and we also know from China, okay, China had its biggest uh, box office uh, record ever in January of this year. And they're ahead of us in terms of their opening. So people are moving, are going back to the movies. Um, and you don't have to believe they're going to even go back as, you know, as much as they were in the past to believe that, you know, this, this stock's going to work because there's a few things as cash flow recovers that's going to unlock their balance sheet and their ability to pay a dividend. We can come back to that in a second. But in the U.S., in um, I think a month ago, just for Memorial Day, uh, we had a Quiet Place 2 come out. And that actually grossed more money than they had expected pre-pandemic. This was a this was a, a movie that had been delayed and delayed and delayed. So there is definitely pent up demand there. Then there's a longer term question: Well, isn't everything going on to Hulu and Amazon Prime? And interestingly, um, very few of the movies that were delayed from 2019 actually ended up being streamed. I think there were like 30 big blockbuster movies. Only six ended up being streamed. And if you look at the if you look at what we stream. Okay, 85% of it is series, like The Office, uh, you know, Ozarks, etc. And very, very small component of it is movies. And so I think the, the long-term outlook is, you know, still very solid for us going back to the, to, to the movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take the other side of that and say when I look at some of the big releases coming, I mean, you look at uh, Disney promoting this weekend really heavily, the Black Widow movie coming out in July and saying stream it at home. 
You can stream it at home. You'll pay extra to do so. Same with Cruella, which they did the same deal, um, same company. Um, and it seems that they're good, there's going to be some combination. And so if you've got some of these companies, maybe AMC is a more extreme example, that are so highly leveraged, mind you, less leveraged than they were before Wall Street Bets showed up and they were able to sell a lot of stock to the Wall right. Street Bets clowns. But um, I shouldn't call them clowns. Those guys, they're actually some of them are serious investors. But I think that um, that some of these companies are more levered than others. I do think it's interesting that that EPR has put these companies all together, uh, it, this experiential sort of uh, uh, combination. What's their notion there? Do they want to have this as a just separate asset class? Well, it's, we, it's a separate asset class called service retail. And actually, we invest in a lot of this type of real estate or similar real estate in our private real estate equity funds. And that's why, you know, we have a pretty strong thesis on this asset class. Um, and yeah, so they're, they're just, I, I do think what their focus is on in, in the future is going to be more towards gaming and a little, they're probably going to dilute down their uh, theater uh, platform a little it, bit. It might be, it's, it's getting diluted down for them. They don't have to do that. <clears throat> well, they've sold six. They've sold six of their theaters. I think they own like over a hundred, but they, they sold six and the, the cap rate they got on those theaters is, is, is not too bad. It was like a low 6%. Um, but only one of those theaters is going to stay to theater. The others are being converted into apartments, into uh, you know, industrial. So, you know, there is where there, often where these theaters aren't going to work in the future. And if I take your point, I think that the equilibrium level of demand for theaters overall is smaller today than it has been in the past. And no doubt streaming is a headwind, but it's, it's, it's probably less of a headwind than, um, you know, you might expect without looking at the numbers. Uh, but you know where they, where you do own a good asset that's well located because the rent difference is so much higher for multifamily or industrial they've been able to actually sell those off at pretty pretty good valuations. Interesting. Now, what where do uh, gyms fall into this fitness whatever whether it's a yoga studio or a, or a, you know Planet Fitness? In a number of fitness um, properties, it's just, it's a smaller percent. It's like less than five percent of what they do. Um, but you know, that's another area that's sort of, you know, come back and, and I think that, you know, Pelotons, obviously there's Peloton, right? I mean, so for every, for every, um, <clears throat> you know, experience almost, you can find a at home version of, but, you know, I think what we've seen is that we're all a bit sick of sitting in our houses, you know, using the Peloton a few times a week and people are going back to the gym. So that's another area that, you know, they're going to continue to grow as well. I was shocked to see these guys also involved in the private education business. Uh, and I don't mean this is not like University of Palo Phoenix. It seems like it's undergraduate um, or not even undergraduate. What am I talking about? It's, it's like high school, middle school and so on. Well, how does that fit into this? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's their education portfolio. It's, I don't think it's one they're looking to grow. A lot of this, you know, has to do with charter schools, but it's really social infrastructure um, and, you know, another way to provide a, a service, but it's not really experiential. And so I don't, I, I, you know, that's an area that w was probably 10%, um, if you go back, you know, five, six years ago, that is being, uh, you know, is, is sort of whittling down because I think there's just, a, there's more complexity uh, as it relates to the operator and, um, you know, the, 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 the grants, et cetera, for, you know, from charter schools that, you uh, I think is less interesting. But you know, what is interesting for a firm like this is really the move into gaming, particularly like regional casinos. And yeah. one of the reasons that, you know, I think this stock will do well 
is because during the pandemic, because their net operating income fell so dramatically, they basically busted some of their debt covenants and they had a, a covenant waiver from their lenders. And the two big things in that covenant were you can't go buy anything and you can't pay a dividend. Um, and I, I think as we hit the summer and the world opens and really the, the NOI from their, uh, from their theatre business is only running about 50% of where it was pre-COVID or less. And once that gets to 60, 65%, they can get out of those covenant waivers and they can, get, they can start their dividend again. They can actually continue to grow their business into some of these uh, you know, other really interesting areas. Do you what? What is the, n- the number that you look at the most? Is it net debt to, to gross assets? Is that the kind of most important from a debt standpoint? Right there? Yeah. yeah, essentially. I mean, their their debt covenant ratio is a is a, is a little different than that. It's like four times NOI divided by the debt, but it's, it's essentially a very similar concept as debt to EBITDA because you know debt to asset value in real estate increasingly means less than it used to because. You know, what real estate value actually is continues to evolve and change pretty quickly. <laughs> it's um, worth what someone's going to pay for it, right? As, yeah, as you the only need one patterns, buyer. Yeah, as demand patterns are shifting, there's a lot going on in terms of how we value real estate. You just got to think about some of those core sectors like traditional retail and office that used to be thought of as, you know, core stable sectors are now the ones with the biggest headwinds. Whereas, you know, I think some of these niche plays like EPR, um, you know, you could also think of self-storage, you can think of single-family rental. All these niche plays are really the future of real estate because it's reflecting the fact that we've, we've changed, our habits were changing pre-COVID. A lot of those habits were accelerated by COVID. And 100%. it's the value of real estate, the value we ascribe to it is going to evolve pretty significantly too. So in a nutshell, yeah, cash flow is king. Look at net debt to EBITDA when you're assessing leverage. Um, and so is there a point at which you start to worry about that? I mean, because as you mentioned, EBITDA really took a hit. Um, but that is, it sounds like it's your, you know, not to get into the investment thesis too much, but it sounds like your notion is, hey, things are improving for this business. That that EBITDA number is going to come up. The net debt has been flat because I can't really borrow more. So at that point, when the EBITDA comes up, then they can start borrowing a little bit more money, buying some new things and increase their return to investors. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, talk to management, and it's probably, it's either this end of this quarter or next quarter that they'll probably get out of those covenant waivers. It's just around the corner. Um, and, you know, the, the, cat, the, 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 the cash flow rebound is going to be pretty dramatic and they'll have a nice cushion. And what's interesting is that um, just given where debt costs are today, I mean, you know, it, it's very, very accretive for them to go out and acquire regional gaming assets, call it an 8% yield, and they can, you know, they can finance that you know, in the threes. Um, and so that gives them a runway to really start to you know, grow earnings again. What an interesting uh, company. What an interesting kind of millennial play. Is it, is it that too? I mean, do you look at the demographics there and say millennials are about the experience, experience is about millennials, this is, this is the play here? Yeah, I think the whole world is turning into a service-based economy. And... Um, you know, and that's that's very much driven by demographics, preferences, and you know, is catalyzed by technology, right? So, di- digital technology is really driving so much of the change of our demand patterns. And you know, and, and the fact is that the the demographics getting younger and younger every day by default, and is you know just more uh, more more desirous to consume services and to use technology to consume services. I mean, you look at Top Golf, for instance. I mean, you know, that's that that's that's very very popular with. I mean, I would suggest that in in you know in in the in 
not too distant future, there's probably more people going to top golf than going to actual golf courses. Um, you know, I see I think the average millennial's appetite to go to a top golf place for a few hours versus spend you know four hours on the golf course. Uh, you know, is, is a is a pretty good analogy for for what you just said. Um, and and there's no uh, country club membership fees either, right? Which they can't afford because they have so much student debt. So you know, it's perfect. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. You're dead on. Scott Crow is Center Square Investment Management Chief Investment Officer, Chief Investment Strategist, I should say. Um, interesting company. We appreciate your time. Uh, we're coming up next on the drill down. The bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. I mentioned the net debt to gross assets for this company and where it is right now. We'll give you that exact percentage right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening to the Drill Down podcast every day. You can make that even easier by subscribing. Click the subscribe or the follow us bill, uh, button on your favorite app, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Pandora. I think that's all. I don't know. There's probably more. There are more out there. But hit the subscribe button, hit the follow button, and listen to every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, that net debt to gross assets for EPR properties was 39% at the end of the last quarter. So you can imagine that uh, that debt number is going to kind of stay flat. The value of those gross assets, we'll see, but they can get some higher EBITDA. Then maybe they start to have a little cash. They can buy some more things. It's a different animal. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to The Drill Down. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.